So uh, we'll read from Exodus 12, uh, verses 1 to 32 today. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it in, in, on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. Whatever, whatever one needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel." Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat an unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will... Pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? you shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their head and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. 
Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Well, I think there's two different types of people in the world. The first type of people are the people that kind of like to push the boundaries, so to speak. As kids, if you tell them not to touch the stove, they go over and take a nap on top of the burner. If you tell them not to take a cookie from the cookie jar, as soon as you turn your back, they take five. I think Pharaoh is kind of the push-your-boundaries kind of person. He is unabashedly in a war against God. God, through Moses, comes and tells tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says, I do not know the Lord. I'm not going to serve the Lord. I don't obey Him. I will not let your people go. Back in chapter 5 of Exodus, God had told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve you, serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So when this plague of the death of the firstborn comes, it's almost expected. I mean, God has brought all these plagues upon Pharaoh because he's in a war with Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And so judgment is kind of expected for him. And some of us are like Pharaoh in the sense that we also like to test the boundaries of what we know to be right. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we've made a lot of mistakes and we know that we're guilty. It doesn't surprise us. Maybe it doesn't even frighten us. We're just aware of of what we're doing and we're unabashedly doing those things. But then there's others that are more conscientious or fastidious. When I was in middle school, I went to a private school, and uh, at this private school, there was a dress code. And on Tuesdays, it was chapel day, we had to wear a tie and wear dress shoes. I never intentionally broke that rule, but sometimes I would forget it was chapel day, or I'd get to school and realize that I was wearing my sneakers rather than my dress shoes. And I remember one particular time, I think I was wearing a tie, but I forgot my shoes, my dress shoes. And the penalty for doing that was uh, you'd get a penalty slip, which meant a detention. Now, I was a goody two-shoes, a suck-up, and uh, I never got a detention before. And so I was terrified that I was going to get a detention. And so I tried to avoid teachers as much as possible throughout the day. When I was walking in the hall, if there was a crowd of students walking, I would try to just kind of walk behind them so hopefully they wouldn't see my sneakers. Remarkably, I got to the, the full end of the day without getting caught for that. But throughout the whole day, I just kind of felt like guilty, like I was, like I was doing something wrong. Like I, I was always a good kid, but now I was going to finally get caught. I was finally going to be sent with the bad kids to detention. <laughs> and I think, I think in a sense, I mean, there's Pharaoh who's unabashedly opposed to God And then there's Israel, who are God's people. And God's people were kind of spared from a number of the plagues. They were spared from the plague of the flies, the hail, the locusts, the darkness. And it seems like they're decent people. They're God's people. They're people who follow after Yahweh. But this last judgment that's going to fall upon them, the the plague of the firstborn, without God's intervention, it's going to affect them also. And some of us are like Israel in the sense that we're generally decent, respectable people, but 
We know there's something wrong inside of us. Some things that we're afraid to bring to light. Things that we know are worthy of God's judgment. And the judgment that God is going to bring both on Pharaoh and on any Israel who doesn't take the proper precautions is, of course, the death of the firstborn. Now, this was significant because the firstborn was kind of the heir, the one who would carry on the family name. It was believed during this time period that the the firstborn would kind of carry the most characteristics of the father, that the firstborn would be kind of the best representation of the father. One writer suggests that the death of the firstborn would have been an attack on the future. And I think the firstborn kind of represented the best and the brightest of Israel and of Egypt. They were the best and the brightest. They were the future leaders, the future property owners, the people who would receive the most inheritance, people who would be the fathers themselves. And in the plague immediately preceding this, the plague of the darkness, we see that God took on Pharaoh's father. Because remember, the sun god was considered to be the father of Pharaoh. So God takes on Pharaoh's father, and now he's going to take on Pharaoh's son, the future But he's going to give Israel a way so that their firstborn shall not die. And he tells them a number of things that they're to do to protect the firstborn. God tells first that they're to take a lamb, a year old, without blemish, to sacrifice the lamb at midnight on the 14th 14th day of uh, of the month. And then they're to take the blood of the lamb, spread it over their doorposts, and then they're to roast the lamb and eat it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now, according to the dictionary of biblical imagery, these actions signify three things. The first thing it signifies is atonement. So the lamb is slaughtered, indicating that sin must be paid for. God created a perfect world, and we as human beings brought chaos into the world when we, our first parents disobeyed God. And each time we do something that's dishonoring to God and dishonoring to our neighbor, we bring more chaos into the world. And because of that, our sin demands God's judgment. And so the first thing that God provides is a sacrifice so that the people would realize the significance of sin, that it was costly, realize that a payment had to be made. The second thing, that they would put the blood over the doorpost, it indicated purification, that those who were inside the house were sinners, the blood would purify them, that would keep them from the destroyer who was to come. Now, it says in the text that when God would come in judgment, He would pass over the houses that had the blood on the door frames. And this word for pass over could simply mean, like it says, it like just to pass by, that they would, He would see the blood on the door frame and pass by to another house. But it also could indicate something different. To pass over could also mean to pass over a hedge of protection. And this word was used in Isaiah chapter 31 in a similar way. It says, Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. So this word may indicate God's protection of this house from His own judgment upon the house when there's the blood over the door frames. And then finally, we see that the act of eating the meat... Uh, of the lamb whose bones were not broken, as well as unleavened bread, was an act of setting the people apart, sanctifying them as a people. 
What's interesting is if you take these three elements together, the sacrifice of the animal, the sprinkling of the blood, the eating of the sacrifices, these were the same three elements that were later involved in the consecration of priests that we see in Leviticus chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter 8. In other words, what is happening here is that God is delivering His people from judgment, delivering them from Egypt and bondage, and He's creating them to be a kingdom of priests who would represent Him to the world. Just like the later priests would be consecrated and set apart to God, Israel as a nation was to be set apart to God, whose sins were atoned for, who were purified, and who were set apart as a people. And this event, the Passover, was a very significant event. It was something that would be practiced for generations to come. It's indicated, the significance of it is indicated in verse 1, where God tells, uh, or verse 2, where God tells Moses and Aaron, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. This is the first of the months. This is going to be like the new year. This is when life starts for you, the Passover. And there's indications that... Uh, this would be an event that they would practice regularly so that the children and the future generations would know what God had done. And so God's places this incredible significance on the Passover and the Jewish people throughout their history have made this their most important and most significant festival. And they practiced it for thousands and thousands of years and even up to the time of Jesus. And Jesus himself practiced the Passover. In Luke chapter 22, in what is known as what we call the Last Supper, it says, then, they came, then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. So Jesus, in the Last Supper, says to his disciples, prepare the Passover lamb. We need to prepare for this meal, prepare for this festival. But little did they know that the disciples that they prepared for Passover, that this Passover would be different. This Passover, Jesus would be the lamb. This Passover, Jesus would be the one who was sacrificed for the people. And so Jesus is killed, is murdered at Passover, paying for the sin of all those who would believe in him. John indicates that just like the Passover lamb whose bones were not broken, Jesus' bones also were not broken. Colossians 1 indicates that Jesus was the firstborn over all creation. He was humanity par excellence. He was humanity as it was supposed to be. The best and brightest of humanity was personified in Jesus. And that's what it took to satisfy God's wrath, to pay the penalty for mankind's sin. And so Jesus was slaughtered for the sins of the world on Passover, paying for humanity's sins, purifying those those who would believe in Him. And just like the ancient Israelites put the blood on the doorframe of their hearts, those who believe in Jesus are covered by Christ's blood, that our hearts are covered by Christ's blood. If you go to Scotland or a place that has a lot of sheep, I'm told that there's uh, an interesting practice that you that you might see, as you see all these different lambs running around the field, you might see uh, once in a while you see a little lamb, and you'll see a little extra fleece tied around this lamb. And you'll see little holes, and it will almost look like they have 
you know, two, two fleeces, two coats. And what happens is sometimes uh, what will happen is a, a lamb will lose its mother. And so the ewe, the little lamb, has no recourse or no, no way to protect or provide for itself. And without a mother, it surely will die. And what happens is sometimes if you try to put it with a different mother, the, the other mother won't accept it. Mother will just push it away, butt it away because it's not hers. But if you have a big flock, sometimes you will have a mother who loses a child, who loses a little lamb. And so when that happens, sometimes what they'll do is they'll take the lamb that has died and they'll skin it, take its fleece, and they'll take it and put it on the orphan lamb. And then they'll take it and present it to the mother and she'll go over and sniff it and she'll smell it. And she'll accept it as her own because it's, she smells her own. In a similar way, God, when He clothes us in His righteousness, in the righteousness of Christ, He sees not what's inside. He doesn't see the brokenness. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see our rebellion. He doesn't see our past. He sees the covering of His firstborn Son, the perfect Lamb of God who gave Himself for us. And He treats us as worthy, even though we're not. Even though we're not deserving of His, of his glory, we're deserving of heaven, He treats us as He treats His Son. And so there's no judgment left over for us. So all we have to do is trust in Him and we can have a relationship with Him, the hope of spending forever with Him, of being a child of God. And then once He does that, He sets us apart. He purifies us through His Holy Spirit. He changes us from the inside out. And so Jesus does that for us. And it really changes everything. For the Israelites in the Old Testament, Passover was a matter of life and death. It was something that they were going to do. And if they didn't do it, then the firstborn would die. For us as believers, we were lost without Christ. Without Christ in our life, we were head, headed for a hell separated from God forever. But God intervened through Jesus, paying the penalty for our sins that we might have life. And this changes everything for us. The gospel is our life. It is our hope. It affects everything that we do as human beings, as believers in Jesus. Some of us today are dealing with worry. And for those of us who are dealing with the worry, the gospel is your hope that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. Some of us are dealing with guilt and fear. The gospel is your hope that Jesus took your place. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Some of us are dealing with suffering. And the gospel is your hope that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Some of us are dealing with insecurity. And the gospel is our hope that Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to die and pay the ultimate penalty for us. Some of us are dealing with anger because of injustice in the world. The gospel is your hope that God is just and will one day come back to make all things right. Some of us are dealing with fatigue, with tiredness, with burnout. And the gospel is your hope that you can rest in Christ. That There's nothing that you can do to make God love you more or make God love you less. The gospel is life for us. It changes everything. 
D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, do you ever have a day that runs something like this? You get up in the morning and you stub your toe in that, on that nail sticking out of the wall that you knew you should have fixed about three weeks ago. You go out to the car, put your keys in the ignition, and it will not start. You get to work late and your boss says, have you finished that report yet? You're staying late tonight if you haven't. The whole one day unfolds in one endless set of many irritants. Eventually, you return home and your spouse has cooked this disgusting stew that your children like and that you detest. The kids that night are really not behaving particularly well. Finally, it's time for bed at the end of this long day and your prayer runs something like this. Dear God, this has been a rotten day. I'm not very proud of myself. I'm frankly ashamed. But I really don't have anything to say. I'm sorry I've not done better. Forgive my sin. Bless everybody in the world. Your will be done. Jesus' name, amen. But then, a few days later, you wake up. And the sun is shining. The windows are open. The fresh air is wafting through the screen. And you hear the birds singing. Then you have a wonderful quiet time with your spouse. You eat a hearty breakfast. Go to your car, put the key in ignition, and vroom. The car starts right up and takes off. You get to work early. Your boss says, wonderful to see you today. Did I tell you that you're going to get a raise? You arrive home. There's a joyous family dinner. The kids are behaving. You have an intimate conversation with your spouse while the two of you clean up the kitchen. Finally, at the end of that day, you get down to pray and your prayer goes something like this. Eternal and matchless God, we bless you you that in your infinite mercies and great peace, you have poured favor upon us. And then you pray for missionaries and their children, their first cousins removed. And then you meditate on all the names of Christ that you can think of in scripture. An hour goes by, you go to bed and instantly fall asleep. Indeed, you go to sleep justified. On which of these two occasions have you fallen into a dreadful trap of paganism? God help us. Both approaches to God are abominations. Do you not understand that we overcome the accuser on the ground of the blood of Christ? This is the only ground of our acceptance before God. That is why we can never get far away from the cross. We overcome the accuser of our brothers and our sisters. We overcome our consciences. We overcome our bad tempers. We overcome our defeats. We overcome our lusts. We overcome our fears. We overcome our pettiness on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. The gospel is life for us. It changes everything. But not only is it our life, but it's also our story. When I spend time with uh, my parents or really any social group, they have stories about different things that happen. If I go spend time with my parents, we might talk about, hey, do you remember when we went on vacation here and we did this and this funny thing happened? Or if I go to my, parent, or my in-law's house, uh, they and my wife have different stories that there. Do you remember this happened? Do you remember you watched this? Or do you remember this interesting thing that happened? And me and my wife have those stories. Do you remember when we went here or we went there? We all have stories that kind of bring us together. And stories are kind of the glue that brings social groups together. According to an article in Wall Street Journal by Alison Gopnik, which was entitled, Want a Mind Meld? Tell a Compelling Story. They described a variety of brain scan studies that show that stories not only shape one's thoughts, but also foster a connection between a storyteller and a listener. The closer the connection, the greater the understanding of the story. Gopnik concluded that the results show that we lowly humans are actually as good at mind-melding as Star Trek's Vulcans or the Borg. We just do it with stories. Other experiments have looked at how stories 
should develop, uh, stories help develop neural pathways and affect our relationships by altering how we order and understand information. See, for the ancient Israelites, their story was Passover. And so they would come together each year and they would perform all these different rituals. And each time that they would do that, they would say, remember that time when God led us out of slavery? Remember when we had no hope and we were in bondage and we just had to work for Pharaoh and then God delivered us by doing all these amazing things and brought us into the promised land? And then the kids are there and they're, they're asking, why do you do this? Why do you have a roasted lamb? Uh, why, are you, why are we putting blood on the door frame? Why are we doing all these different rituals? And they say, well, because God delivered us from Egypt. For us as believers, our story is the gospel. And so as we come together and we worship, as we sing songs, as we look at God's word, that's our story. That's why we do what we do. It's because Jesus has saved us and he's made us new. And so when people ask us, why do you do that? Why do you go to church? I thought church was boring. I thought that's just something that you do if you feel guilty. Why do you do that? Jesus has saved me because he's made me new. Why do you sing songs? Because I'm so grateful for what Christ has done for me. The gospel is our story. The gospel is the thing that brings all different types of people together. I mean, in and of ourselves, even the people in this room, we would never all associate together if not for the gospel. But God brings us together through the gospel. And it's our story. It's our song. It's the thing that's to guide us as a church. And if we get away from that, if we make anything else our story, even good things like helping other people or being nice people or improving ourselves, if we make anything else our story, we've missed the point. Because the gospel is the thing that brings us together. The gospel is the thing that changes us, that gives us a song to sing to the world. So that when they say, why do you do that? Why do you... Live the way that you do as we can say it's because of Jesus, because of what he's done for me. The gospel is our life. The gospel is the story that unites us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us on the cross. We thank you that you are our Passover lamb who took away sins not just one time, but once and for all. That because of your blood, we can enter into bo- with boldness into your throne. That there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you that because of Christ, when we p- turn our lives over to you, you don't see our sin anymore. You don't see our past. You don't see our brokenness. But you see your perfect righteousness, the righteousness of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you forgive us of our sins. We thank you that you set us apart to carry out your purposes in this world to be your representatives, to have a story and a song to sing, to declare your praises among the nations so that when people wonder about how, why we're different, we can say it's because of you. It's because you've changed us, because you've rescued us, because you've made us new. God, I pray that the gospel would be our life, that we would never run away from what you've done from us, that each and every day it would change how we live. And that for us as a church, it would be our story and our song. That when we went, people enter into the doors of the church, they would sense something different. That everything that we have, everything that we do, is because of you and your love for us. 
In Christ's name I pray. Amen.